launching in 2015 by the Writing and Literacies Communication Team. Writing and Literacies Oral Histories is a podcast series providing an added medium to highlight the origins and founding of the SIG. In this series, we consider new directions for scholarship and research and hear established and emerging members of the Writing and Literacies organization. Our special thanks to Dr. Vaughn Watson, Assistant Professor of Teacher Education at Michigan State University, whose piece you hear opening our podcast. Today on Writing and Literacy's Oral Histories, we're joined by Dr. Stuart Green, Associate Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and former President of the Writing and Literacy SIG. I'm Dr. Robert Leblanc, Assistant Professor of Education at Cal Poly Pomona and historian for the Writing and Literacy SIG. Our talk today is titled Expanding Context, Literacy, Politics, and Civil Rights. And this podcast surveys the origins and expansions of the Writing and Literacy Special Interest Group from the perspective of its former president. Here we talk for about 30 minutes about how Dr. Green got his start in the field of writing, his engagement with the SIG, his time as president, and where he sees the field headed today. For this particular podcast, you'll hear Dr. Green and I begin a bit in the middle of things. Uh, We've been talking a bit off the cuff, and here I'm hoping to capture some of his initial conversation about his work in basic writing at the University of Wyoming, uh, where he was a colleague with Dr. Christina Haas, quite fortuitously, uh, who was also a person quite instrumental in the history and founding of the SIG. And so we begin our conversation in the middle of things in Medias Res, talking about his time working with Dr. Christina Haas. Here's Dr. Stuart Green of the University of Notre Dame. Did she do her PhD at Carnegie Mellon as well? She did. Before we went to uh, grad school, we both taught full-time at the University of Wyoming. We arrived there in 82. She, I think she spent a year. I spent four. She, after a year, went to Carnegie Mellon. And then uh, she, among others, motivated me to go back to graduate school and get her a PhD. So we were there with MAs in English, and we taught, you know, composition and taught in the writing center. I had done my MA in English at the State University of New York in Binghamton, and then I spent a year in lecture positions uh, teaching, you know, four courses, uh, two at the community college in Ann Arbor, Washtenaw Community College, and then two at Eastern Michigan. The, The job opened up at Wyoming, you know, I applied for it and got it. The idea that Wyoming had was to hire people uh, like me and Chris to teach, you know, courses and work in the writing center and do so with a sense of consistency, but to also make these limited appointments so that there was no sense that we would stay ever stay beyond five years. So once, uh, you know, I had been there four years, I decided that the way to have any sort of gravitas within a department especially as someone running a writing program, I would have to have a PhD. And the the irony, you know, this may not relate to really what you're after in terms of the history, but I, I, I directed the basic writing program at Wyoming in the last year that I was there and uh, really began to give shape to a program that both influenced my efforts to learn about cognitive theory at Carnegie Mellon, but also influenced the way I started to think about, well, how do you run, you know, Mm -hmm. a writing program, which I did, in my very first semester after graduate school uh, at, at Wisconsin, that was a handful, as you can imagine, while also mm-hmm. trying to publish and get tenure. Yeah, that's that's really interesting just to think, well, on two fronts, one about the fact that uh, Wyoming seemingly became a, a hotbed for sort of major folks 
uh, in writing studies that you and Christina Haas are there at the same time, seemingly by by fortuity, actually. But also, I think more broadly about the the sort of place of basic writing or writing centers within the the larger field of writing and literacy studies. And I know for you as somebody who's still heavily involved or was very recently in writing centers at, at Notre Dame, I mean, where do you where do you see presently the kind of state of basic writing or writing centers um, in relation to the larger university? Well, that's a that's a really good question. You know, in an institution like Notre Dame, the assumption has always been, since I first became familiar with Notre Dame's writing program in the mid-80s, when I had a colleague at Notre Dame who was teaching legal writing, she had just finished a PhD in uh, in English, and we had this conversation about whether there could be a writing center at Notre Dame and what the role of writing was and the assumption there, and I think elsewhere, you know, as I mentioned, in the context of elite universities, that students come with the skills that they need, so that any writing instruction, any uh, need for a writing center, reflects uh, the practice of remediation. Those things don't really have a place at the university, and it seems counterintuitive to us now. But that was the state of things 30 years ago. When I arrived at at Notre Dame in uh, 97, I still had to make the case uh, for a writing center and that the writing center was not remedial in any sense of the word, but that the writing center would fit the trajectory of any student, uh, undergraduate or graduate student, since writing writing, we're always learning to write. And I think the challenge over the years has been to take on a dominant narrative that says a writing course will take care of whatever needs students have as first-year students. And if they don't have those skills, then they need to be placed in remedial instruction. The writing center has played an increasingly more integral role you know, over the last 30 years, I remember the one that I was a part of at Wisconsin that Brad Hughes has directed, and I think that he's been a strong voice centering the writing center uh, within the institution and saying that the writing center is a site where all people can take advantage of talking about their writing, uh, improving their writing simply through talking and uh, learning through collaborative efforts to improve upon one's own writing, uh, especially through the kinds of questions writing center tutors typically ask that encourage people to develop, expand, uh, reframe what they're writing. Even just that language uh, of reframing, of revising, really took on the ideas and the assumptions behind what a writing center was, that it was a place where you edited your writing, where you could drop off your paper and someone would uh, help you figure out the grammar. And so I think it's been a really important trajectory over the last 30 years to rethink what a writing center is and really rethink what writing is, uh, that it's a process it develops in multiple contexts with multiple audiences. And uh, we're always learning to write. I think, you know, hearing that, I think that's a really good segue sort of backward into your um, emergence coming out of Carnegie Mellon and your your entrance into the writing and literacy SIG. 
Um, so I wonder if, if, if you could take us maybe through a bit of your intellectual trajectory out of graduate school, how you got plugged into the SIG, and also, you know, what was going on in writing at the time that was interesting and inspiring that was leading people into these kinds of conversations? So I, as I mentioned, I was directing the, the basic writing program at Wyoming, and I was mostly spending my time at NCTE and, and the four C's. Uh, from about 82 to 86. The focus was very much on on writing process. It was really serendipitous that Donald Murray spent the year at the University of Wyoming, uh, really emphasized the process approach that I began to adopt that influenced the way I directed the writing program. But I wasn't as familiar with uh, cognitive processes uh, until I got to Carnegie Mellon. And the other opportunity that I had in my own professional trajectory was in 1983, Richard Young held a seminar at Carnegie Mellon on writing. He was probably the most instrumental person I had as a teacher, maybe more so than Donald Murray, who I got to know quite well at Wyoming. And they, the two of them represent different approaches to writing, which really helped to broaden my understanding of uh, what process approaches were. Peter Elbow was writing at the time, and that was still another approach that Richard Young himself challenged as uh, more romantic in the sense that writing could be learned, but it couldn't necessarily be taught. When I got to Carnegie Mellon, again, my ideas about process really began to change uh, Certainly, I, I got the opportunity to work with Linda Flower and uh, Dick Hayes, uh, who were, of course, developing a model, a cognitive model of writing. But they were also beginning in the 80s to expand upon that model. And the very semester I arrived at Carnegie Mellon uh, in 1986, Mike Rose was teaching. And I mentioned Mike for any number of reasons, but the most of which, most of which in my entry into the SIG was this was a really exciting time to be studying writing and literacy. Mike was the first person really to help me think through literacy within what I would uh, call a broader ecology of writing. I don't know that people were using the idea of ecology, but I know in a previous podcast that Sarah Freeman was talking about the influence of context, and there were many people talking about context in the writing SIG, the presenters were coming from all over. Uh, it was, uh, again, exciting time. Gordon Wells had come from England, and he was talking about contacts with early childhood work. And uh, Sudan uh, Hidi was coming from Canada, Bryan Street. So we were really beginning to think about contacts within the university, within university writing programs but also within the context of disciplinary communities and the broader community of where one lived and where one grew up. People like Mike Rose were helping us to think through not only the logic behind the ways in which students wrote and thought, very much in keeping with what Mina Shaughnessy was talking about, but he was really talking about the broader ecology of writing and learning, using his own life and lives on the boundary as a lens through which to understand not only his own development as a writer and as a literate person, but also the experiences with the young people he was working with in, in various programs. 
And I think that was significant alongside of the fact that Shirley Bryce Heath began to become a presence at the writing stake, the kind of ethnographic fieldwork that she had done in ways with words carried over into, uh, again, what I would call this broader ecology that was more than just context. Linda Hull has talked about emphasizing power, and that was certainly part of it. But we also began to understand policy in the United States and the ways in which it influenced not only what literacy was, but who got to be literate, who had those opportunities, what kinds of access that people have uh, to become more fully literate and to become part of the democratic process. And we, you know, learned from people in the SIG that we needed to keep pushing on what we knew about cognitive theory and, and Steve Woody's ideas about activity theory were really uh, instrumental. You know, people like Chris Haas, you know, were, were growing up at that time, but already thinking about different kinds of literacies and the ways in which technology was influencing the way we think and the ways uh, we write. But as uh, president of uh, the SIG, I also uh, invited Michelle Fine to be part of that conversation. I, was, I think that was, for me, an important moment. I had gotten the chance to work with Shirley Bryce Heath and invited her to Carnegie Mellon to give a three-day workshop on ethnographic field work. And having Michelle Fine come to the SIG was, on the one hand, historically kind of controversial uh, in that she wasn't a writing person. And I got some feedback uh, that suggested that we should stay within the community of writing research to understand the role of literacy. But I think that Michelle Fine, again, was someone who pushed the boundaries in the ways we thought about context, the ways in which we thought about race, the ways we thought about power. Uh, she was already working on the idea of dropouts and the extent to which we learned that kids who are underserved and under-resourced communities are also some of the, the kids who are being pushed out of school, even though they had extraordinary intellectual capacity. Uh, to me, that was extraordinary alongside of what I, I was learning and others were learning from, from people like Mike Rose. You know, that's really interesting for me on, on a couple fronts. I think um, one of the things I've been fascinated about is, as we continue to do these oral histories is the sort of role of fortuity in people's intellectual trajectories. And so thinking about Don Murray being at Wyoming or um, your encounter with Mike Rose at Carnegie Mellon, I, you know, even more recently, I heard Alan Luke give a talk and he talked about the time someone put pedagogy, the oppressed in his hands and said, you should probably read this that often these things just have a kind of um, a, a sort of uh, fortuitous uh, a kind of trajectory to them that, that ends up having this longer, longer arc. Maybe jumping ahead, building on that, um, hearing you talk about sort of expansion of context, expansion of what constitutes literacy, but also an expansion of whose voices get to matter. Thinking yeah. about your contemporary research around things like photo voice, about community-based <laughs> research, can you maybe talk a little bit about how that kind of expansion is now influencing the work that, that you're presently doing? Yeah, thanks for, for asking about that current work. I think about it as a, along this trajectory that I've been reflecting upon. In the, in the mid-90s, so I'll answer your question somewhat indirectly, I was writing a lot about authorship and voice, and the idea behind authorship was to think about ways in which young people and college students could begin to use what they were reading and understanding critically to advance their own positions in ways that weren't and still aren't really taught. I mean, how do you create a space in which to have a voice to be heard? You know, that 
has really influenced the ways I've thought about literacy now as I've begun to, th- begun to think about digital literacy, photography, citizenship, civic engagement, in the context of working with youth and leadership programs and literacy centers. I think it's been really important to tap into the kinds of things that Glenda Hull and others have been doing for quite some time now. But one is to listen to youth, listen to young people, because they have the capacity to help adults think through these kinds of contexts that we've been trying to unpack for quite some time. And again, I think of context in terms of these neighborhood spaces within the larger ecology of literacy. Where do kids live? What resources do they have access to? How have policies affected the erosion of those resources within inner city contexts. We've been able to use uh, the youth empowerment program I direct with uh, Maria McKenna and Kevin Burke, ways to ensure that youth are connecting with neighborhood associations, with the mayor, so that they can hear what kids need. And kids oftentimes tell us that they need safe spaces. They want to build relationships. They want to know their neighbors. They want places to hang out. And I think we take for granted that kids have those kinds of safe spaces when, in fact, they don't. So in using photography, digital videos, as well as writing, we've been able to give kids the tools through which to convey what they know and understand in these different media and to be able to write, for example, an an op-ed piece that persuades the community to to keep a library open. Or they propose to the city parks that a park needs to be refurbished. Or they exhibit their photographs at the art museum and thousands of people come through and they leave posted notes to say, wow, these kids have really opened my eyes to a world that I've taken for granted. And they're helping me see assets in the community, you know, I haven't really thought about before. You know, my idea of voice <laughs> has, of course, developed. My idea of context has certainly expanded a great deal over the the years, but I think within this context of youth empowerment, you know, it's really called attention to the fact that we really need to reimagine schools and reimagine the uses of literacies so that kids can be more fully a part of communities that make decisions about what they learn in school and what resources they have or don't have within their communities. This sort of reflection on literacy with regards to political economy, civil rights, race and engagements is particularly germane for this current political climate that we're in. I mean, do you see a kind of renewed need for literacy given current political state of the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I think young people especially have long felt disempowered and silenced, certainly within schools, and they're rarely, if ever, asked what they think by policymakers and community leaders. And that's begun to change. And I think it's begun to change because of the kinds of efforts that Glenda Hull and others have made over the years. Linda's, uh, Linda Flower has developed her program in the, with other uh, others in, in Pittsburgh. I think that these efforts are really important because the policies that we've been discussing and the policies that seem to be coming real are going to affect health care, are going to affect schools, school choice, vouchers, charter schools. I think that it's going to be really important for all of us to use the power of writing and image to convey to people uh, the urgency that's upon us to create more access 
to resources and to challenge the status quo that would, you know, privatize the very things that we've, many of us have become dependent on. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, from some corners, the idea of become dependent on becomes dependency in a very negative light. But policies have affected people's lack of access to resources, have exacerbated poverty, and the political economy has distributed resources away from some of the most vulnerable populations. So I absolutely think that we can play no more important role right now than to encourage young people, adults, to speak up and to speak out, as John Lewis would say, and to challenge the status quo in order to ensure that people have what they need to flourish. To uh, make a small pivot, I would be really interested if you could talk a bit about your tenure as president of the SIG. So perhaps why you decided to get involved at the executive level and, uh, and what was going on while you were president of the SIG. I mean, like others, uh, I know I've listened again to the podcast, and I think George Newell put his finger on the vibrancy of the SIG and the kinds of networking that was going on, not just in the, the talks, but in the business meetings uh, that connected us all to such rich and varied work, both in the United States and internationally. So I'd been presenting my work. I hadn't actually intended to be the, you know, become part of the administrative structure of the running SIG. And, but others felt that I could play that role. And I was quite pleased to assume that role and the set of responsibilities of sustaining that kind of vibrancy. You know, the way that played out was putting together programs, first as program chair and then reinforcing it as president. I suppose that I had more of a role in shaping the SIG as the program chair because I could, with the reviewers, identify and select proposals that were going to take us further in the ways that we were beginning to think about writing. So it wasn't just keynotes at the business meeting that I was influenced, but I think having people like Michelle Fine and Marcia Farr come was significant in the ways I've mentioned before in pushing on the things that we already begun to understand as writing researchers, but to uh, broaden our perspective on how we should be defining context and how we should be defining literacy. And especially Marcia's work in immigrant communities, that was not a part of the, the kinds of concerns that we were developing in the late 80s, early 90s. I guess my tenure as president was in the mid-90s, and we were still focusing a great deal on classroom discourse and disciplinary communities. But I think that I, I began to see with others, again, with people like Mike Rose, to look at race, look at class, look at urban policy, look at the political economy. And that bled into some of the work that I did as president of the National Council, Council of Teachers of English uh, Assembly for Research. So sometimes it's difficult for me to separate out, you know, the kind of work that was going on, you know, at AERA where we began to develop a research network or four C's where there was still a need in the mid-90s to emphasize research or NCTE. But assembly, the Assembly for Research, by the time, you know, I was doing my work there in the late 90s and became president of that organization, it was also, for me, important to think about uh, racial inequality in the context of literacy as a civil right. Some of those things were just beginning to come to the surface in the mid-90s when I was, when I was president and program chair. 
And it's interesting to see how those have really as, as through lines have, have carried on. And I think if we're looking today at the writing and literacy SIG, I, I think I see all of those as kind of major points of emphasis that, that continue today quite productively. For you, just as a, as a final question, as you, as you sort of look across writing studies today, the sort of state of, of writing in the university, what, what do you see as sort of the current trends that you'd like to see continued? Or what are some things you, you think we need to continue to pursue as a field moving forward? You know, I can't help but feel strongly about some of the current work I'm doing rooted in community-based research. I mean, I, I am thinking of people like Valerie Kinlock. Uh, who've also talked about critical service learning, that part of equipping students to be literate means being able to develop uh, a body of knowledge, but also the skills through which they can look critically at what's going on around them and to communicate it in ways that do create the kinds of urgency for change when we see you know, persistent inequality. I think our students more and more are getting involved in service learning and community-based research. I think service learning can be a one-off kind of uh, prospect, and so I would not diminish the role of service learning, but I think community-based research has been really instrumental in the kinds of learning and really the leadership that I've seen my own students take on uh, the real-life endeavor, working with young people in a community, talking to uh, neighborhood associations, interacting with the mayor, has influenced the ways they thought about their own life trajectories. So I think that on the one hand, I certainly in developing the writing program at Wisconsin and then Notre Dame was really about ensuring that students could be successful within an academic context and learn the accepted forms and conventions of academic writing. I still think those things are important because, unfortunately, uh, faculty don't always demystify what those conventions are across disciplines, and I think it's unfair that students don't know what those things are going going in. That places a huge burden, however, on the writing program, and I think where I am now has been slow to see the wisdom of a writing across the curriculum program. I think that's been especially important. So on the other hand, I can't help but say that equipping students to be participants within a democracy, they have to learn how to look critically at the things around them. And I'm struck by how isolated young people are from one another. And here I'm thinking about university students you know, this is where I am as a primarily white institution. I think one of the criticisms uh, of the recent election was that people don't know each other. They don't interact with each other. They don't understand how to navigate difference. Uh, and so they retreat into their own worlds. Community-based research is really a way to develop a sense of reciprocal learning that grows out of trying to negotiate the kinds of mutual interests we have in improving our society. I think that's the perfect context for students to study political science, history, economics, that they have to get out in the world and see that the things that they're learning have real-world consequences. And they can be empowered in ways that enable them to use their voice to advocate for change. To go back to your question earlier, uh, if we're doing our job at the university uh, well, then we're seeing that the university is also integral to the workings of the communities that surround us. I think we have a certain responsibility in that way to think about writing as part of the larger issue of civil rights and civic engagement, equity, and change to ensure, again, when I, the word I used earlier is to ensure that people can flourish in the lives that they want to lead. 
I think that's a really powerful way to uh, to conclude, thinking about the continued need to humanize the work and the research that we're doing, and also to make sure that our work has a um, tangible work in the communities that we're hoping to, to impact, and, and, and doing so by, by being in relationship with the people that we're working with. So I want to thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it, and the SIG thanks you as well for your time. Well, I'm happy to have done this. I really appreciate your asking and appreciate the way you just put many of the things I just said. You know, I if there's something I would end with, it's, you know, I, it's this idea of humanizing the other. And through that, that process of humanizing others and building relationships, it's, it's really at the core of what I think we could be doing, not only as teachers of writing, but as educators in general. This has been an oral history podcast of the Writing and Literacy Special Interest Group of the AARA. Look forward to an upcoming episode in the near future with Dr. Jennifer Rousel, Professor and Canada Research Chair of Multiliteracies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, and recent winner of the Steve Witte Award of the Writing and Literacy SIG. Till then, I'm Dr. Robert LeBlanc. Thank you for listening.